0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Hurrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10 as we continue our series. I've got a tough one for you this morning. I might step on a few toes. I don't think I'm stepping on a few toes, but We're going to be talking about a difficult doctrine today. As we look at the joy of God's gracious will. As we continue on here, we've been looking at the disciples or the 72 as they've been sharing the gospel. God's Jesus sends them on a trip, as you might recall, and they come back and things went very well. And last week, Jesus conducted a debrief with those seventy two disciples who have returned from their missionary endeavors and they were filled with joy as you can recall over their success and their new and surprising found, found new, their surprising power newfound power over demons. Jesus mildly rebukes them though while instructing them they should not find joy in their power over demons or their power to uh, heal or in the power of proclaiming the gospel, but to find their joy in their position as a child of God, one whose name is written in the book book of life or written in heaven. And so we looked at that in the same way. You and I are not to obtain power, look for power as the world looks for it, but to look to be in the right position. It's about being in the right position position and for you and I it's being the position that we are in Christ and so we spent some time looking at it what it means to be in Christ but now as we come to the passage this morning these three verses Luke is now going to turn his focus onto Jesus himself as Jesus now responds with joy as well and worship that the redemption plan of the kingdom of God has drawn near and is being revealed by the gracious will of the Father. So with that, Luke chapter 10, it's going to be here on the monitor, but again, I always encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, let me know. I'd love to give you a copy of God's word free of charge this morning. It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 22, where Luke writes that in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, speaking of Jesus, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one who, and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Father, Give us wisdom as we open up this ancient text and bring it 2,000 years into the time that we are now to help us understand what it meant to the original readers and then to do the work to understand it, to interpret it correctly, and then apply it to our lives. And may we respond to the Holy Spirit's work. Let us recognize that what I speak here, let us be able to discern between what's the truth of your word and what might be my mere opinion. And Lord, let us be able to shift through that in a wise manner that you may be glorified and for our good, we praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now once again, Luke was pointing out the Holy Spirit's work in Christ's ministry. If you start in Luke chapter one and you just work your way, you're always seeing the Holy Spirit is much more uh, at work than we see in Matthew through uh, Matthew and Mark. We see that Luke continually points out that Jesus' ministry is empowered and anointed through the Spirit. In this case, in bringing joy, the Holy Spirit is bringing joy that leads to Jesus to worship in prayer. I thank you, Father. Rejoicing, though, here is a natural occurrence with a spirit-filled believer. All believers are filled with joy. Rejoice here means to be filled with delight, more than just a mere happiness that is fleeting or temporary, but it's filled with delight. The Bible tells us that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice. It calls us to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And and it commands us to rejoice in our sufferings and even in our trials and to pray with joy, with extreme delight, to be filled with delight. Paul writes to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice And in our passage today, Jesus joins his disciples in a display of joy that leads to thankfulness and worship. And that's, by the way, when you are filled with the spirit, when you have joy in your heart, you know, joy like a fountain, uh, it should always lead to thankfulness and worship. And I want to take a moment here to look at three things that Jesus finds joy in. We talked about that last week. What do you find joy in? For me, you know, I was thinking about that yesterday as I was walking through the neighborhood. And one is, you know, I just enjoy being a child of God. I enjoy being a grandpa and a a father. I enjoy uh, ministering and pastoring at this church. Those are three things I find joy. Now you might find something different. I I think most of us find joy in grandkids. If you haven't had grandkids, by the way, I I, I strongly recommend it and encourage it. I think you have to have children first, but let's all do it through the right way. But there's something about grandchildren that just brings joy to our hearts. And I pray that each and every one of you get to experience that if the Lord tarries. But we're going to look at what brings joy to Jesus. So first, Jesus rejoices in the sovereign will of the Father. He rejoices in the gracious will of the Father. The sovereign will of the Father. And what he's joyful about is strange at first. It says that he's joyful that the fact that God hides and reveals salvation. The redemption plan. With Jesus' earthly ministry, the kingdom of God is now drawn near. Salvation from sin and reconciliation with God is now at hand. The promised snake crusher, the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15, has arrived. The one who will crush the serpent's head. And he's ready to destroy the works of the devil. And this redemption plan has been boldly proclaimed by the prophets and has been anticipated in the works of the priests throughout these uh, centuries and has been eagerly awaited by those who trusted in the Lord. It has finally arrived. However, we find that this salvation has not been fully revealed to everyone but hidden to those who Luke describes, or as Jesus describes, as the wise and understanding, which seems strange. Because if anything would be revealed, you think it would be the wise and the understanding, those who are high in intellect would be able to understand what God's plan is, the redemption plan. But here we see that it's actually hidden to those that the world would consider wise and understanding. What Luke tells us that it's only revealed to those that are actually characterized as little children. Did you see that? Jesus finds joy that God has sovereignly hidden it from the wise and understanding, but he finds joy in that God has chosen to reveal it to what he calls the little children. In our scripture reading earlier, we had read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God and that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. In other words, the plan of salvation cannot be found in the wisdom in the books of this world, in the those who we would consider wise and understanding. He goes on to say, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It's not through wisdom book learning it's not through logic and reason it's not through creation that's a revelation but there's general revelation it's not a saving or a special revelation it goes on in our scripture reading that Landon read earlier said that it pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe so what's interesting is God has chosen to reveal his salvation, not through the things of this world, but through a man standing up and opening God's word and preaching from God's word. Now that's strange. Because if you and I were trying to figure out a way to communicate and to reveal something that's so important, that eternity hangs on, you and I would probably come up with some type of TikTok, right? Some type of Instagram. Instagram. Maybe a Hollywood uh, thing or some type of way of putting it out there so people would be entertained, would be, would be attracted to it. In this world of ages, it's hard for anyone to come and sit for 30, 40, 50 minutes and listen to a monologue. It's not the way that you and I would choose, but that's God's wisdom is choose choose it to reveal it through the preaching of his word. And not only that, is God chose not to reveal his plan through the gaining of worldly wisdom. In Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three through four, the apostle Paul writes that God has instead has used Satan to hide this wonderful truth of salvation to those that we would consider wise and understanding. Look at here, it's on the monitor. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to those who are in their sin. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So God is using Satan to blind their minds to keep them, it says, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you're quick with your Bible, if you're a sword drill person, you may want to turn to Ephesians chapter two, or at least write this down to look at a little bit later. But in Ephesians chapter two, he says this, or am I, I think I'm in the wrong place. Chapter four, I'm sorry. In Ephesians chapter four, it says, speaking of the world, it says, they are darkened in their understanding. They, they Their understanding for all of their degrees, uh, Gary, they, they can't understand. They, they can't understand the logic or the reasoning. It says they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So we see that the God of this world has blinded their minds, but also that they're darkened in their hearts. They truly are like that Egyptian pharaoh who not only hardened his heart, but also had his heart hardened by God. Now, when you and I see the phrase little children, we're not necessarily speaking of you know, little Michael and, and Aidan and, and, and Nolan. Now, what we're seeing here Oh, I should say, Lily, I don't want to forget to our, our young female. The phrase little children refers to those that have an open and trusting attitude and are receptive to God's word. As we read in verse 6 of chapter uh, of, of, of that chapter in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, God said, let light shine out of that darkness that you and I just read of Ephesians 4. And it is shown in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we find the glory of God? He continues by saying. In the face. Of Jesus Christ. Now you and I obviously. We, we, we don't look for pictures of Jesus. And say oh well there, there's, there's God revealing himself. But what we see it is in the face of Christ. His humbleness. Philippians chapter 2. His, his joy in, in, in going to the cross. His passive and active obedience. That we spoke of last week. Now, Jesus rejoices in the father's decision to hide and to reveal salvation as part of God's gracious will and according to his wisdom and for his pleasure. So that's the first thing that Jesus finds joy. And the second one is that Jesus finds joy in the authority and power that was given to him by the fa- father. He finds joy in the authority and power that was given to him by the father to continue in his ministry. Look back in Luke chapter 10, look at verse 22. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or no one knows who the Father is except the Son. So there is this unity, there is this secret here. And to anyone, though, whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So it is only way that we can see the Father or know the Father, who the Father truly is, is through Christ. Now this reflects the image that was given in Daniel chapter 7. We spoke of this last week, Daniel 7, verse 13. You might remember Daniel was a prophet that lived in Babylon. And he was having a series of dreams or visions. And there was one given to him that he describes in chapter 7 of verse 13. He says, and I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man, one who looked human. And he came to the ancients of days, who is God. And he was presented before that ancient of days. And to him, speaking of the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve that son of man. And he goes on to write that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom shall be one that shall not be destroyed. What we're seeing here, Jesus is that son of man who has given him dominion and glory and a kingdom by the ancient of days, Yahweh. In Colossians chapter one, looking again, I believe here, hopefully on the screen in verse 15, we had read this scene, talk about, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the son. Why? Or if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father. Why? Because it tells us that Jesus is the image of an invisible God. Scripture tells us no one has seen God, but if you've seen Christ, you've seen the father. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Say that with me. Ready? Ready? preeminent glory dominion power is his forever for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell so rejoices that the authority and power has been given to him he also rejoices in his union with the father for together they are work to fulfilling the plan of redemption and bringing god's children back into the fold The Father and Jesus have the same identity and the same nature. They are one person, or they are three persons as we speak of the Trinity, but each one or one is God. Jesus is not subordinate to the Father. In this passage, we get a picture of the relationship and unity of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture informs us that we can only know the Father through Christ and vice versa. And then thirdly, is Jesus rejoices that his disciples receive the privilege of this wonderful revelation. Jesus rejoices, he finds joy that his disciples, the men who are following him, receive the privilege of experiencing and hear the revealing of the plan of salvation. Look with me at verse 23 of Luke chapter 10. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to First Peter. They're in the end of the New Testament. First Peter chapter 1. This promise of a Redeemer, a Messiah, a Reconciler, was first given to Adam and Eve back in the garden. We spoke of that last week. Again, Genesis 3.15. Very soon after the rebellion against God. And the rest of Scripture tells us how God was going to accomplish this redemption plan. Remember the story of the Bible. The prince slays the dragon, wins the girl. However, that plan has been slowly revealed over time through shadows, through types, and promises. God in his wisdom chose not to lay it all out. There was not some organizational chart. There was not a PowerPoint that was put out. There was no type of press announcement other than I am going to send a snake crusher. In verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1, read along silently with me. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Peter writes concerning this salvation that you and I are speaking of, the salvation that Christ offers. He said the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Did you see that? He said the salvation that was going to be yours was searched and inquired carefully. The prophets who gave the, the, the prophecies about it, they searched about it, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicated. They wanted to know what, what would the snake crusher be like? Where would he be from? What would this Messiah be like? What would be his power? When will he come? He goes on when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that, you have, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things, the Bible says, which even the angels long to look into. So what we're seeing is there's the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Amos, those and and even King David, those that had prophesied these things, even from Moses who says, I will send a new prophet to you. They did not see this salvation in their day. All they saw were like shadows and types They heard the promises, but they never got to see the Messiah come. Now, that would be tough, wouldn't it? That'd be difficult to be able to give those promises, to to say, I'm looking forward to this, but never to see it come to fruition. That's difficult. But what we see is he's saying, you have the privilege to see things, That even David did not get to see. That Abraham did not get to see. You get to see something and experience something that even the angels in heaven long to look at. The angels look at grace. They look at salvation and they have no idea how to experience it. Because they do not receive grace. Their sin was once and done, and that's it. There's no grace given to the angels. And so for them, they can't sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because they will never experience that amazing grace. Peter in this passage, and Jesus in Luke, is sharing that the prophets, the priests, and the kings never saw the promises fulfilled. The writer of Hebrew writes that those who suffered and martyred in the faith, even though they uh, were martyred for their faith, even though they did not receive what was promised to them. They went to the lions. They were sawn in half. They had their heads cut off. They were crucified. They died in the arenas, but they never saw the true promise. Speaking of the prophets of old. Jesus tells these 72 men that they are blessed To see the fulfillment and revealing of the kingdom of God. So just to summarize. Just in in what Jesus is finding joy in. uh, Theologian Walter Leofeld notes that the theme of rejoicing. Is in God's sovereignty in imparting revelation. In his relationship between the father and the son. And the privilege of participating in the proclaiming the kingdom of God. These are the things that Jesus finds joy. Not an exclusive list but in this case. These are the three things that Jesus is finding joy in. Now, you remember the background, again, the context, is sending out the 72 as an advance team. Remember, they were to go to city to city, towns to towns, villages to villages, to proclaim that Jesus is coming. He is the snake crusher. He is the Messiah, the one that will set all things right. Now, they did not truly understand all of what that meant, but Jesus is here. And to demonstrate that Jesus has power, we're going to heal those that are sick, those that are lame, those that are physically in pain. And not only that, they were able to cast out demons that fought and fight and are adversaries of Christ's earthly ministry. So this power is coming. The kingdom of God is coming in power. So with that, they're finding joy. And and what we're seeing here is Jesus saying, but there's something you need to understand here about the kingdom of God that I'm finding joy in. Because I want to take some time and look at these three observations. The first one is at times very difficult to comprehend the fact of Jesus or God hiding and revealing to some. It's very difficult for us to comprehend and accept. What we're learning from Jesus' instructions, from Jesus' prayer, and this blessing is that believers, that the believer's salvation is not due to their good works. Remember, he, he had already told them about that. It's not in your power, it's in your position. And it's not even over their power over demons, and it's not even over their intelligence <clears throat> in the fact that they could recognize who Jesus was and the Pharisees could not. But their position is due to the gracious will of God. So I want to take some time this morning to concentrate on that first theme. God's sovereignty imparting revelation. His hiding of the understanding of the kingdom of God to some while he reveals it willingly to others. Now this doctrine, this action is called the doctrine of election. Wayne Grumman writes, you'll see it here on the monitor if you want to understand a little bit more or see it, is that doctrine of election is is an act of God that before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Once again, it's an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, in which he reveals, he's choosing to reveal to them The salvation, God's redemption plan, not on account of any foreseen merit in them or any self righteous or righteous in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. What Jesus says, God's gracious will. Now, typically, when people hear or come to read this doctrine, they're shocked, they're confused, and they're sometimes even angry. That one's salvation rests in the sovereignty and the will of the Father seems wrong. It seems arbitrary and it seems unfair. I can remember when I first came to this, attention to this, and I, just, I would just cast it away. But eventually it came face to face in my biblical reading. And as I began to study this more and more, this is one of those ones that was confusing. It was very alarming to me. One that I, I strive to discount and and, and, and and disclaim at all costs. However, in the end, we have to come to it biblically. Continuing here as we go with uh, some observations that's made by Wayne Grudem. I'm I'm indebted to his work in his the systematic theology he answers some of the objections that I have and that many people have concerning this doctrine of election, this act of God in which he chooses to reveal his salvation to some, but to hide it from others. First, election means that you and I do not have a choice in whether we accept Christ or not. You and I would deject and say, this is what it says. This is not fair. This is wrong. This is arbitrary. It's not my choice. What about my free will? Yet scripture does teach us that you and I do have a voluntary will and we do have real choice with working with God's predestination, with God's will. Both work together to accomplish God's gracious will. So we struggle with God giving Jesus full power and authority and dominion. But when one is sovereign king, it means he is sovereign over all things. Some would say that then, according to this definition of election, then our choices made in life are not real choices. But they are. As scripture tells us, that God counts them as real in scripture. Therefore, they are real. The Bible says that one day we will stand before Him and give an account of everything that we've thought, everything that we've done. The living and the dead will one day give a true account. Some would say that the doctrine of election just makes us puppets or robots. We're not real persons since God has written all things together. This is a common reply, but again, we understand through scripture that God has created us in his image. So even those whose minds are darkened by sin, we are given logic. We are given reason. We have things in which we think. We have affections. We have uh, choices that you and I make. And you and I count as real persons who make real choices every day. Some would say well, the doctrine of election means that unbelievers never had a chance to believe. This is the toughest one. Dawn and I have debated and thought of this one. We have loved ones who do not know Christ. We're concerned about them. And so this is very compelling. This is the emotional one, right? This is the one that says, I I can't believe this. This doesn't seem fair. But what you and I need to understand is that Scripture actually blames people for rejecting God's message because people truly do reject His message. In John chapter 5 verse 39 Jesus answers those who rejected his ministry. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And and they do. But he goes on, and it is they that bear witness about me. They tell you about me, but yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So when one rejects Christ, it is a true rejection. They do not want things of God. Some of the stakes that you and I make sometimes when people say about hell, when we think about those who die, the penalty of sin is death, right? And all will be thrown into the lake of fire. And you and I say that's not fair. But here's the thing that you need to understand. There will not be one soul in hell that will still want to change their mind. There will not be one person in hell who says, wait a second, I've changed my mind. I want to be saved they will all still be cursing God, shaking their fist at God. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus laments to Jerusalem before they take take him, betray him, and kill him. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. Jerusalem's history is filled with killing the men of God, as God continually reaches out to him, how often would I gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood, brood, under her wings, and you were not willing? Some would say, "Within election is unfair." Well, take your Bibles very quickly, if you would please, and turn to Romans chapter nine, verse eighteen. And I'd say this one seems reasonable. Is it fair? And we're very sensitive to things that we consider unfair, right? We, our, our country is in turmoil because of equity and equality and things that are not fair. And we, we struggle with these things. And, and we desperately want things to be fair. We, we want people to, to have the same equal opportunities. We want them to be able to obtain the things that, that we, we want to obtain, things that others have. We must also understand that it would be perfectly fair. This is something that's difficult for us to understand, that it would be perfectly fair and righteous and just if God did not save anyone. Romans chapter 9, verse 18. Paul, writing to the church of Rome, speaks of God's decision, his election, his sovereign will. and says, so then God has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is what Jesus finds joy in. He says, you will say to me then, well, why does God then still find fault? Who can resist his will? Good question. Paul answers it when he says, but who are you, old man? To Answer back to God. And by the way, that's why I always say that when you and I are sharing the gospel, we cannot start with heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Heaven is just a man-made concept of paradise. Religions, this world is filled with religions who have some type of heaven, some type of paradise, some type of utopia. You know, where every, every time they bowl, they get a strike. Every time they hit the golf ball, it's a hole in one. I'm not sure how much fun that would all be, but that's what, heaven is the great fishing hole. You know, you hear that in funerals. They're, they're in heaven doing their best life now. That's not what heaven is. It's not what the Bible is about. It's about God. That's why we were saying this morning, how beautiful. So you and I need to start with God. It's about God. Our misunderstanding is the fact is that you and I truly don't know who God is. So everything must start with God, who is the almighty creator. God of love, but also God of mercy and justice, who demands justice. How do we answer back to an almighty God? God. Well what is molded say to the molder why have you made me like this now he's talking about someone who's making pottery seems silly if i'm making a piece of pottery i don't ask the pot, i don't ask the clay what do you want me to make you it's my decision to make it whatever i wanted to make it or to unmake it he goes on to say has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use in other words maybe a, a great va- vase to hold water So they can put flowers in it or to pour water to drink or some type of beautiful vase for people to look at or to make another one for dishonorable use. Those days they would use a clay pot to do their toilet in, to wash their dishes in. He says in the end it's God's choice. An ashtray or a nice vase. Vase, vase. Yeah, potato potato. Yeah. Especially in my in, with my tongue, my voice. You and I have a misunderstanding of who God is. The Bible says that God's will is to save everyone. What about that, Rob? And you know what, you got me there. Because the Bible does say that. That's true. First Timothy chapter two, verse four, Paul writes that God desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And some will declare that God desires to preserve man's totally free will. And so it's it's all about free will. You hear that all the time. Yet scripture teaches us that God desires to demonstrate his glory in both salvation and his righteous judgment as well. You've heard me say before, the problem is with free will is that nobody has free will. We actually misunderstand. What's your definition of free will? To most people, free will is, well, I can choose my way. I can choose road A or choose B anytime I want. But you and I actually understand that we can't do that. You and I are always compelled by something within us to choose A or B. That's just life. We use the old phrase, uh, could you kill someone? Well, no, I could never kill anyone. But what if someone put a gun in your hand and said, I'll shoot your child if you don't shoot that stranger? Okay, now things, I know that's dramatic, but that changes the concept right there. You know, what would you do, Gary? How far would you go to save one of your children, one of your girls? You'd go, you'd, you'd go the distance. Why? Because your love for your children is love more love than that stranger. So there's something that compels you, that makes you make decisions. It's why I choose brownies with walnuts and frosting rather than a piece of carrot at night. Who wouldn't? Though these objections can be answered through scriptures, it's a very difficult doctrine to understand and accept. I don't believe to change your mind today. I don't think I could change your mind. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It can be easy to blame God and think of him as unfair and a moral monster. Many have. However, as theologian Robert Stein writes, God in his wisdom has done what brings him pleasure and delight. And everything that God does is right. And so Jesus finds joy in that. You and I must never let this doctrine pull us away from God. Instead, you and I are to dwell in his goodness, his righteousness, his mercy and justice. We should never use this as a means to, to find pride in that God chose me and he didn't choose you. That would be the wrong thought. Because our rejoice is in the fact that God chose me even when I didn't deserve it. Wayne Grumman continues to write that you and I must know and understand that election is not fatalistic or mechanistic. It doesn't mean that you and I don't have real choices and that we don't have real loves and real affections. Election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. Typically when people say, well, well, we believe in conditional election. In other words, God looks through the annals of history and he says, oh, Rob will choose me, so I'll choose Rob. But the Bible tells us that God chose us while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me before I chose him. You see, that's not how God's foreknowledge works. Foreknowledge actually means foreloved, foreknown, foreloved. He loved me before. The ultimate reason for election is not the person's own decision to believe or not. Scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason God chose us. Election is based on something not good in us or our faith. If, if, excuse me, election was based on something good in us or our faith, it would be the beginning of our salvation by merit or by works. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3, you'll see this here on the monitor. Paul rejoices in this. When he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's been revealed. Even as he chose us in him, we talked about that last week, before when? The foundation of the world. Before in the beginning, God knew us, God loved us, before we were created that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. He knew he was going to adopt us into his family according to the purpose of his will, according to the purpose of God's gracious will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That is to bring us joy and to lead us into worship, which, which he has blessed us in the beloved. He continues on then in Ephesians chapter two. Again, another very familiar passage of scripture. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It's not by works. It is the grift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are as a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for our hand, that we should walk in them. In other words, you and I are saved for good works, but we are not saved by our good works. That is so important for us to understand. Why? So that we can rejoice and find joy in God's gracious will of looking at us and loving us before we loved and knew him. Thank you. That's the joy of the Christian. And I pray that that's your joy today, that God has revealed that wonderful truth to you that the kingdom of God is here and then goes on to write, well, what about this New Testament? Instead of it bringing you fear and anger, maybe despondency over a loved one or over a friend, he has given us so that you and I can be given as a word of encouragement or comfort. Paul writes in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That we may be sanctified and and, uh, um, um, adopted. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the revealing. And those whom he called, he justified. He made us right with God. He declared us right before God. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. That's where our names are written in heaven. And so this is to be a a comfort to us, not a source of pride, not a source of, well, see, look at me, I'm one of God's chosen ones. It's not to cause us that, but to give us a comfort. But as you see there, it's also presented as a reason to praise God, to find joy, not to be angry or bitter, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13, Paul encourages his readers, "But we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel." so that you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the same way, you and I are to present the gospel. Why? Because God still have those of his flock that need to be called in. That was the job of the 72. That was the job of the 12. It's the job of you and I. We're to praise God, knowing that when we present his word, that it does not return void. But number three, you see it there. It's encouragement to evangelism, which just backs on to what I just said. Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to his young protege. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of elect. Now, he's writing this while he's in prison. And 2 Timothy is near his death. He knows he's about to die. He's about to be martyred. He's about to get his head chopped off. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect." For those that are chosen by the gracious will of God. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You and I endure the sufferings of this world. We endure our fight with sin. We endure uh, all these things so that we can present Christ to those that God is calling. And so for you and I, it's an encouragement to evangelism. Now if you're like me, evangelism is scary. Evangelism is something that's difficult to do. The last thing that you and I want is to be rejected. Anyone here like rejection? No? Okay, good, good, good. Uh, There's there's no say to sin here. we, We just don't like those types of things. But the Bible says that we need to encourage. Yes, he said to the 72 and the 12, there will be those who will reject you and reject your message. They will mistreat you. But yet there are some that will hear you gladly and God will reveal it through the Holy Spirit's work and they will come to know Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of that, to be in heaven and someone comes up to you and say, you don't know this, but one day you left a track at this restaurant and I read it and I didn't get saved then, but it led me to the, the, the web, the, the little web thing that she had on there, the website. And I kind of watched a few messages and and it was kind of watered. Then I went to this church and, and I eventually came to know Christ. But you were the first one who shared the gospel with me. It's encouragement to evangelize. So in closing, let us consider this passage in our missionary endeavors, just as the 72. You see, that's true. All of us are God's children. And all of us have been chosen to advance the kingdom of God as we declare that the only way to a saving knowledge of God is through Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, we read that there is salvation in no one else. Let me tell you, there is no salvation in, in Allah. There is no salvation in the Mormon God. There is no salvation in Buddha. There is only salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. There are not multiple ways to salvation, roads to Jesus He goes on to say, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but but the name of Jesus. Like the 12 and the 72, you and I are an advanced team sent by the Holy Spirit, sent by Christ to proclaim that Christ is coming for he is coming soon. And we need to get that message out. The Bible tells us that it's through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place you and I have been given the same tasks of the 12 and the 72. You and I are to proclaim the wisdom of God, not through signs and wonders that the Jews Jew seek, nor through the wisdom, the worldly wisdom of man, through logic and scientific knowledge, but through the preaching of God's word, the preaching that Christ is crucified. Foolishness to the world, silliness to the Jew, a stumbling block, He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What you see in here, Jesus is given an early joy, is finding early joy in the race that was set before him to endure the cross. So let us rejoice in the wonderful, amazing news that the father has sent the son to redeem his children from their sin. And this redemption is according to his wise and righteous plan that is hidden to some and revealed to others. Let me tell you this. It is not our job to decide or discern who the elect, who the chosen are. It is our job just to be faithfully spreading the seed of God's word, trusting that God will cause it to grow through the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I are just called to be faithful. Let us find confidence and joy in the gracious will of God. As I close with this verse found in Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the Son of Man forever. Let us join in rejoicing as Jesus did in the gracious will of the Father. For every head bowed and every eye closed as the worship team comes up and Randy makes his way for our pastor's prayer, I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider these words as difficult as they might be and then to pray, consider them, pray. Father, what do I do now? Maybe you haven't been revealed, it hasn't been revealed to you the plan of salvation, who Jesus is. Maybe your prayer is simple, just reveal it to me. Father, I want to know. Help me understand. Pray that the Holy Spirit would come and reveal God's wonderful work to you. Maybe you're here and you have done that. Maybe your prayer is, Lord, help me to be faithful in sharing that good news. Help me to find comfort in this truth. Help me to find encouragement and a reason for joy. It's not up to me to convince someone to accept Christ, but just to share Christ faithfully. And then to respond to whatever the Holy Spirit may be calling you today. But in all things, let us find joy in the gracious will of our God. We praise Christ's name. Yeah, Randy, would you come and pray for us?